You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and on this week's episode, I talk with Jamie Beretta, a child life specialist for NYU Langone. Jamie has a really interesting job that not a lot of people are aware of. She's part of this team that essentially works as the support system for sick kids who are in the hospital. She does things like explain surgery to preschoolers. She runs arts and crafts classes that doubles therapy sessions. She helps parents talk to their children about death. Uh, Some of it is pretty weighty, and some of it is really funny and wonderful. And I hope you enjoy our interview. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Jamie Beretta, and I'm a certified child life specialist at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital at NYU Langone. And exactly what is a children's life specialist? Child life specialist. Child child <laughs> life specialist. Um, the million dollar question. I get asked that a lot. A child life specialist is a person in the hospital, part of the healthcare team that works with patients and families to help alleviate the stress um, and trauma associated with being in the hospital and being sick. So we're there for children to help them understand what they're going through while they're there, give them outlets to cope, whether that be art or music, working with parents, siblings, helping really the whole family to be comfortable and familiar with the hospital environment. And are you working with kids who have chronic illnesses, terminal illnesses? What kind of sicknesses do these patients have? So I currently work in the inpatient unit. So it's both chronic illness as well as kids coming in for surgery, acute care. But our child life team works all throughout the medical center. So we have child life in the emergency room, the outpatient clinics, the emergency room in Brooklyn and Manhattan. So we're really wherever a child is being seen at the medical center, there's a child life specialist. How many people are on your team? We currently have about 12, 10 to 12 child life specialists, but our team is we're the creative child life and creative arts therapy department. So that also includes art and music therapists as well, because as we know, kids cope in different ways. And sometimes it's through child life and understanding their medical experiences, but sometimes it's using art and music to express themselves. How old are the kids you're dealing with? Is it just everyone under 18 or, or what's the age That's range? a good question. So we see kids 0 to 21. Generally, if they're older, they have some sort of pediatric illness and they're still followed by their pediatric doctors. So sometimes we even see patients who are 22, 23 years old until they sort of tr- transition to adult care. That's a really wide range. Really wide range. <laughs> Do you have a a specific like subset of kids you tend to work with age-wise, or are you kind of dealing with kids across that that whole spectrum? Yeah, so our hospital, we the unit is made up of all the different ages, so I, I see uh, an a range of ages. Some hospitals I know do break it down into age units, so the toddlers, the school-aged children, the teenagers, but we currently have everybody in one unit. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. on, on a given day, you might be working with a three-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 21-year-old to figure out what their needs are and, and kind of guiding them through the, the care process. Exactly. That's yeah. that's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> and and the caseload is, I wish it was only three kids, but we generally have about 15 to 20 kids that I will see on a daily basis on my caseload that I'll try to see. <laughs> Every day. Every day. We have about 50 on the inpatient unit. We're in the process of moving to a new children's hospital in which there'll be two inpatient units and 34 beds each, so 68 total. And I know you said that you're you know, dealing with 
chronic illnesses mm-hmm. that's the inpatient unit, but can you just give me some examples of the you know, kinds of conditions that your, your patients have? Yep. So we see children anywhere from they have asthma, diabetes, cystic fibrosis. They are a new diagnosis of an illness, so a new oncology, hematology diagnosis, that chronic illness. We have a a congenital cardiovascular unit. So that's children born with heart defects. So they're born with it and they have different stages of their treatment. So we may see them throughout the lifespan. And most of those children are being seen also at the outpatient clinic. So even if they're not inpatient, they're being seen by child life specialists outpatient as they continue to cope through their life with their illness. So you get to work in the morning. How do you start your day? You have 20-something kids in front of you, uh, How? where do you even begin? So I'll get to the basics. I First thing I do is I print out my census. So that's the list of all the patients that are currently on the inpatient unit. I go through their medical record, get a sense of what they're there for, just so I, I don't walk into a room blind and I can know what to expect. Then at that point, I'll figure out who is new overnight, who needs to learn, be introduced to what child life is. I'll meet those new families so that they at least have an idea that this service is available. And Do I'm, most families not know that when they come in? Or are they? Most people don't know what child life is. So when I'm going to introduce myself, they have no idea unless they've been there before. Most people won't know what child life is if Do, it's their first time in the hospital. But you then have some repeat customers as well, for totally. lack of a what better What we call term. frequent flyers, yep. Oh, really? So we'll yeah. have kids, like I said, through their life span that will be there or have to come to the hospital every six months. So we'll really get to know families well at that point. So you're coming in, you're you're checking to see who's new and who you have to introduce yourself yep. to. And then about and then after that I will check in with the the nurses um, and they will give me a sense of if there's any kids having procedures, any kids with a new diagnosis, or any families that could really just use extra support. And that will help me prioritize my day. So if I know a kid is going for a surgery or a certain procedure that they may have never had before, that's a high priority for me to meet them and help them learn about what they're going to experience, help prepare them, and sort of give them the coping skills to deal with that procedure. How do you explain surgery to a toddler? (laughs) Yeah, so childless specialists, we really... We say we're the experts on child development because our job is really to know how do children at different ages, different developmental levels understand the medical environment, understand anything at that for that point. So we have different ways depending on their age or development. But we we try to use, if it was a toddler, some really simple language. We always check with the parent first. That's the number one thing. We really want to partner with families to help understand what about their child we should know about. How do they typically cope with stress outside of the hospital? How do they typically understand things? Are they the type of child who likes to know a lot of information or should we wait to the last minute? So we'll partner with the family and then at that point be able to start explaining it to the child in whatever language they may understand. And we do a lot of play. That's the way children learn about the environment. So we do something called medical play. So we really let them interact with some of the medical supplies that they may see throughout their surgical experience. Um, So a fun thing that we do with the anesthesia mask is bubbles. I I hope you're not handing them a scalpel. No. (laughs) (laughs) We do do needle play, but that's for older children. Noodle play? Needle play. Oh, needle play. (laughs) Needle play. We can get to that That, later. That sounds like something totally different. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, the anesthesia mask, we stick right in the bubbles. And just like we want them to take deep breaths to get anesthesia, they do it with their bubbles. And that's just a way to familiarize them with the items they may see, help them role play it so that when they're in that situation, they're able to do it. And so I assume so they're not terrified. They're not terrified. Exactly. It helps reduce that anxiety. Wait, so I have to ask now, what is needle play? So needles are obviously an anxiety-provoking They're, thing for anybody. I for, for me, I can't look Children at a needle going in my arm. So. Um, but what we know is that by preparing kids and letting them play out their experiences, it helps them cope in the long run. So if they're getting a blood draw or an IV, which is the mm-hmm. tiny little catheter that goes in the veins, we're able to allow them to play out that experience on a medical play doll and so that they can really understand step by step what's going to happen and talk through what will help them deal with that when they're really afraid of needles. So using an actual IV on a doll. So we'll go through first you have to put on the tourniquet and then you have to clean with an alcohol swab. And then what is your job when they're going to do the IV? Your job is to stay really, really still. And so they're physically doing it on the doll. They're also practicing. And then when it's time for their IV to be placed, they have those skills in place. How do most kids react to that process? So that's another big part of our job is to make those assessments beforehand. So I wouldn't automatically go in with needle play. I'd really have to assess how does this child react? Would that be too much? Would that scare them more, like you said? But if I've assessed that this is actually something that would probably be beneficial for them, we're able to do that. But not every kid would go for this. (laughs) What tells you if a kid would actually go for that? Similarly to how we partner with the families, we'll ask the the kids about their previous experiences with needles and get the sense of what went well, what didn't, and how they reacted in those situations. And if it was a matter of them just not understanding or needing to practice a little more, then that would be a really good candidate for needle play. But if it's someone who at the sight of a needle gets queasy, maybe we're not going to do that. Or somebody who doesn't want a lot of information, they just want to look away and say, one, two, three, do it, then they may not want to. But we really want to give kids control and choice as much as we can, because being in the hospital, they lose all sense of that. So having that conversation that this is an option, we can play it out, we can do medical play, but it's your choice. That's a huge part of our job is control and choice. So in a lot of ways, you're an educator. That's the, the, the I guess one part of your job. Yes. And you have to assess how a kid learns and a kid's learning style. So what kind of a background did you have to, or I guess like what was your educational background to, to get into this line of work? So I have my master's in child life um, okay. from Bank Street College. And a lot of our courses are about how to explain different illnesses in a developmentally appropriate way. Because we know that the medical team does a great job of explaining things to to families, but they may not be able to break it down in a really child-centered way. And so that's really our job to go back after that conversation has been had and say, okay, you got the new diagnosis of leukemia. Well, what does that mean for a child at 5, 10, 15 years old? So I had courses in how to do that. And so I had my master's, which included the coursework, and then also that included an internship. And then you pass a certification exam, and then you can become a certified child life specialist. So the internship and the certification exam are the two big parts. 
But what is the difference between talking to a kid about leukemia at five mm-hmm. first? So we know that school age children, that seven to 10 age range are really concrete in the way they think. They're concrete thinkers. So when I'm explaining, I, I use more than just verbal education. I may have different teaching items, whether that be pictures on a tablet or we have something called loose parts where we use random items within the medical environment to explain something. So one thing I do is to explain a brain tumor is I use model magic. So I'll take little pieces of model magic and I'll roll them into a ball because cells is a very abstract thing, which abstract thinking is for teenagers. So to explain that a tumor is when the cells come together, we'll use little balls of model magic, put them all together to explain a tumor. Whereas if I'm explaining it to a 15-year-old who's able to think abstractly in a future-oriented way, they may be able to understand that it's actually when the cells come together and they're not supposed to be there. And that's, I mean, at that age, you're dealing with someone who thinks like an adult. Exactly. To some extent, not Mm -hmm. quite, but at least they can understand things. So I may not use as many manipulatives with them. I may be able to do the verbal conversation, but we do have a lot of different teaching methods depending on the age, different apps on the tablet and different items that we may use. Where's the transition where a kid goes from needing to have their tumor explained with, you know, silly putty or, Mm -hmm. you know, versus you can just actually have a conversation with them? Or is it just different every time? It's different every time. I think that's with every patient, every situation is different and every and the style in which they learn and understand is different. So that's part of my assessment to really understand what would be the best method for this child to understand in a way that's going to not make it too scary for them. I feel like I might be asking this question a bit early, but it's just all of a sudden I, I it occurs to me, you're probably the person who has to explain death to some kids. So unfortunately, yes, that is part of our job is kids dealing with really bad illnesses and prognoses. And so our job is to, yes, help them understand what that means, but also help them deal with that. That's a lot. That's really strong, powerful stuff. And so how can we support them through that journey and give them the tools to not only cope, but express themselves around that and give them the tools to do so. When was the first time you ever had to have that conversation with a kid? I think we really try to empower families to do that. Our job is also educator advocate. We want to advocate for families to be able to do these things with their children. But a lot of times they don't have the tools. Like I've never had to explain this to a child. Like they don't know. So we can give them the language Mm -hmm. to do so. But we're also present at a lot of those conversations. So supporting the family through that. They can certainly lead it. They know their child best. But we want to be there to support the family when questions do arise. So you're kind of a guide through those really tough emotional moments. Exactly. And we, we work with siblings a lot around death as well because helping them to understand what their brother or sister is going through and what they can anticipate. So again, parents, how do I explain this to their older brother or sister and giving them the tools to do so or helping facilitate a visit to the bedside and preparing the brother or sister to what they can expect? When they're very sick or when they're both terminal, when it's both? Yeah, so any, we, any, any, sib- any sort of sibling visit. So it's not just education. To some extent, you're also a therapist. I suppose. Is that a little bit? Or I imagine you uh, yeah, end I up in that our, I wouldn't call us therapists, but yes, yeah. we are there to help guide and support families through this, this journey of right. such stress and trauma and fear and all those really strong emotions and sort of giving them the tools to do that. 
I want to kind of go back to um, where we started, which is just kind of how you go through the course of your day. So, you know, you were talking about prioritizing the kids who have surgery mm -hmm. um, and because they need to have you know the process explained to them or they just need to be prepped. But then who else is on your list? Who are you who are you looking to deal with next? So surgery and procedures is definitely a high priority but there's also like i said before play is really important so so children who are going to be there a little bit longer or children who are just more withdrawn or we can we can tell that they're anxious about the hospital environment giving them opportunities to play to have some distractions so we have playrooms on all our units um, and we really want to encourage kids to do the normal things that they would be doing at home. So if they really love board games, come to the playroom and choose a board game. Or if they really love music, come to music group. And it's a way for, like I said, not only to normalize this otherwise really abnormal environment for them, but let them meet other kids who are going through similar things and their age-related peers. And so as much as we can maintain some sense of normalcy and routine within the hospital environment, that's also a high priority for our job. How long are patients in the hospital for? I mean, I imagine, again, it probably differs, but yeah. how long can they be in the hospital for? It really ranges. Some kids are there just overnight for three to five days, but then we do have patients who can be there for weeks to months, mm -hmm. unfortunately, depending on their illness, their discharge needs, and what going home in a safe way looks like. That can be a, a relatively long journey. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I, I don't usually insert myself too much into these interviews, um, but I should probably say I've spent a lot of time in hospitals, um, just with my own with my father, with my wife has had some illnesses, and it's emotionally trying as, you know, uh, when you have a loved one there. But the thing that's always struck me is the extent to which all the staff seem to be going through these traumas right alongside the patients. And I, I guess, how do you separate yourself from that? 
or or can you entirely? That's something I'm wondering. You know, I'm I'm coming back to the, this idea that you have to help a family explain to their kid what death is, and or that they may not you know make it through a surgery. And just what what do you do to kind of get through that? It it's definitely not easy. Like you said, our job is emotionally taxing. It's emotionally draining at times. There is obviously the beautiful part of our work and the rewarding stuff, but it's something that you have to learn as a clinician and it's it's not easy to find. But you eventually have develop a sense of boundaries in your work and the ability to separate what happens at work and going home. And that, like mm-hmm. I said, that's not an easy thing, but burnout is something that is very real in our profession and the idea of it becoming too emotional to do anymore. So by setting those boundaries, and everybody's boundaries look a little bit different, but it's something we learn about in grad school and something then in the field we have to practice. And that may be something as simple as when your shift is over, making sure you leave on time because it can be easy to stay an hour past your shift. Mm -hmm. But having that boundary and saying, no, I'm done today, is a really simple but powerful thing. And just knowing yourself and what self-care you really are going to engage in and actually practice that. So if it's something like just I'm going to go to the gym after work or I'm going to have a dinner with family and friends and really sticking to that to know what what is going to help you sort of separate that emotion that you had all day yeah. and give yourself a sense of identity outside of that. So it's just kind of concrete stuff. It's just, I mean, have you ever had a moment where you thought you were burnt out? Not yet. Not yet. How long have you been doing it for now? Five years. Yeah, five years. But you've seen colleagues hit that wall or? I've seen people change professions or change units. You know, mm-hmm. being in the inpatient unit, um, I think, is is a little bit more. Not to say that any other unit isn't, but you are seeing patients there for those weeks, months, the death happening. So I think maybe just changing units, changing roles within your department certainly can help. But I, I haven't hit that yet. And I'm hoping that because I have strong boundaries and self-care that I will be able to maintain a long career in this field. I mean, To what extent do you feel like you're developing real long-term relationships with these kids? I I think we do because, like I said, we are seeing them throughout their lifespan. So we're seeing them when they're born and then I haven't been in the field this long, but then they could be graduating to college. And so we've really been through them at at their worst experiences in life, like the most stressful time. And for them to allow us into that journey, I think is really powerful. And so it we definitely get invested. But at the same time, you have to set some set sort of some, a boundary. Exactly. Is that just, I guess, are there any rules of thumb there? I mean, is there are there things you do to make sure you don't get too invested in any one child? Or is it? I mean, some uh, one simple boundary is be, not being Facebook friends or social media friends with any of your patients. That's something mm-hmm. really simple because they sort of get to know you and want and friend request you. And being able to say, no, that this is my personal stuff versus my work life. I see. So that's a simple thing, but really important not to cross that boundary. And I think even within our department, we have a strong support system of when you're feeling like, oh, I think I may be pushing the boundary with this family. I'm feeling a little too close. Maybe I'm doing something more for them that I would have done for another family. And you really have to think to yourself, am I doing this for me? 
or am I doing it for the family? And so we have clinical supervision groups, which is a chance for us all as child life specialists, music therapists, art therapists to get together and really talk through some of those experiences and say, you know what, I think I need some advice or I need to check myself on this one. And that's really been helpful to my own clinical practice to be able to have those conversations with other people who are doing the same kind of work. I feel like I'm I'm focusing on kind of the sadder aspects of the job. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Because I imagine there probably also has to be a lot of joy. I mean, you're you're helping kids through these trying parts of their life and they're not all good. Some of them are going to come out of it healthy. So I guess what what are the parts of the job that kind of I just make you happy on a day-to-day basis. I think it's just seeing kids are so resilient. And Mm -hmm. to see them maybe start off the journey, come in really anxious and scared of the medical environment, and then by the end of their admission, flourishing and saying Mm -hmm. to, to the nurse, no, I need numbing cream because I don't like to get poked and this is what really helps me. Or they're coming to groups and leading the bingo group with me because they have just become so acclimated to the environment that they want to help other kids. So Mm -hmm. I think it's those situations where they maybe start out having a tougher road and then seeing their coping skills really highlighted by the end of their journey. You're watching them mature and change and grow up in a way. Yeah. And what about just like things you do with kids or like, I mean, are there what are what parts of the do you find most enjoyable? Like, is it the is it is it explaining the surgeries or is it things like art or music or stuff like that? I think it's a little bit of both. I think if it was all prepping kids for surgery, that would get a little boring. Um, But that's definitely an exciting part of our job is being able to explain to kids their procedures. But there's also a lot of fun therapeutic activities that we do, like making a volcano and we make it therapeutic by you're going to put all your feelings into the volcano and we're going to make it explode because what happens if we hold in all our emotions and don't let it out? It feels like we're going to explode, right? So mm-hmm. when you're feeling sad or scared, what can we do? And so it's it's a fun activity, but we're also having a therapeutic conversation around it mm-hmm. and teaching them skills of what what do you do when you're feeling sad, mad, frustrated. We do a really cool activity called toilet paper targets. So kids get a big piece of white paper and they make all these different targets of things that make them mad, sad, frustrated. And then they grab toilet paper, they wet it, and they throw it at the at these targets. And it sounds funny, but it's a way because these are strong emotions that they're dealing with. But how, as a six-year-old, do you deal with that? So instead of having a tantrum or screaming, you're getting your anger out in a more in a safe, uh, more contained way. So when they're experiencing those emotions, how to give them that container to experience them. I'm just mad. I, I think like <laughs> I actually would probably just like on a daily basis, like hurling like to have toilet, some toilet paper, paper targets. Who wouldn't? <laughs> you know, it's sort of like there are now all these like axe throwing bars that have <laughs> opened up. That's sort of like the adult version. Oh, there. Adult version. Yeah. No, I shouldn't say they're all. I think there's like one or two in New York <laughs> City right now. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I can totally understand how that would that would work for for a seven year old or yeah. six year old. But who's actually harder to work with? Is it the young kids or? Is it the teenagers who maybe understand a little bit more about their situation? Personally, I went into my profession being so scared of teenagers, thinking that they were going to be the hardest to work with because, you know, they're too cool and they don't want you to come into their room. But I've ended up that is my favorite population to work with because they are able to really express themselves. And like we said, think in that abstract way to really say, how they're feeling and what they need and knowing themselves and their body. And I think they 
can add a whole new layer onto how I interact with them because they can give you so much. And it's it's not easy to build relationships with teenagers. So I think that's so also that's a, a challenge. You have to, like break through. Yeah, I it's not a going in and meeting them and you're automatically in. It's every day going in and facing that rejection maybe and just keep showing them that you are a trusting, reliable person in their healthcare team and building that relationship. And even though it's not easy, it does take time and work it ends up being a really powerful one. Because at that point, you have established a relationship with someone who can kind of, there's a give and a take and a yep. back and forth. And there's that level of trust. And so I actually am also the co-chair of our hospital's Youth Advisory Council because I have loved working with teens that much. And that's a really amazing opportunity. We have a group of 10 teenagers who have experienced healthcare at Hassenfeld Children's Hospital, and they come back monthly to be part of different projects and initiatives of what is it like for a teenager to experience healthcare and what can we do different and better at our institution to change it for the next patient. And I think it's so amazing that they are so future oriented Mm -hmm. that they're not thinking about, oh, the next time I go, but they're thinking for the next patient that's there, how can we make it different? Because we know what happened during our experience. And now we want to change that. And it's it's an amazing thing. And they feel so empowered to be able to give back to the hospital and, and change it for other teenagers. We've talked about helping kids prep for surgery, about figuring out kind of what sort of therapy they're going to be going through mm-hmm. for the day. What other kinds of things are just, you know, are on your checklist? I also run different groups in our playroom. So Yes, the medical and explaining stuff is is a large part of my job, but then there is also that playroom aspect. So Mm -hmm. I run different groups in the playroom, as our Child Life team does. So whether I run hospital bingo, so that's a really fun one that it's a fun game, but it's also a way for them to learn about their experiences. So we hold up a picture of an item and they we talk about this is an IV. Who's had IVs before? What helped you during your IV? And so wait, wait, so is hospital bingo? You you get bingo if you've had like four things done to to you or or do do they also have they have a card they'll have a card okay it's not just (laughs) if i've had an iv and an an appendicitis that would would be challenging but um (laughs) no i do hold up pictures okay but yeah running groups is another part of my job in the playroom so besides hospital bingo which other groups are you running I do medical play. So okay, um, that's, that's when kids will get their stuffed animal and they have – we lay out all the medical supplies on the table. And that's actually less um, driven in a way that I want them to learn about the upcoming procedure that they have. This is really free play. So letting them explore the items and do it on their own um, terms. So it's not – I'm not guiding it in any way. Um, but inevitably I end up – being able to see sort of what their understanding of some things may be, um, you know, when they're grabbing that syringe and and maybe stabbing the, the doll in the eye and sort of saying, so what's making you do that and further explore uh, maybe what they understand of what an, a syringe is or what an IV is. So initially it's not guided medical play, but it is a really good assessment tool for me to maybe follow up on. So you've medical bingo medical play? Are there any other kinds? Yeah. So then we have tons of diversionary groups. So we have different groups from the outside that come in and host groups in our playroom. So we have our weekly 
clown magician who comes and performs a magic show in the playroom every week that the kids, especially our kids who have been with us for a long time, look forward to every Thursday because Mm -hmm. they know that that's when that program is going to be. We have horticulture therapy so the kids get to make their own plant and learn how to take care of it and it's something tangible that they can take home with them. I imagine that also kind of gives them that sense of control that you're talking about, that they can take care of someone else even if they're being taken care of. Exactly. Um, And we have lots of art groups, music Mm. groups. Um, So it it really is a we have a calendar every week that shows the patients what will be going on in the playroom. Mm -hmm. And so that's another um, choice that they can make, which groups they want to come to. Um, And if they're not able to come to the group, we can also provide those activities at bedside because some kids are on isolation precautions, which means they're stuck in their room throughout their admission. So how can we support those kids who may not be able to come out and socialize? What do you do if a kid just seems to be really depressed? Like, is there sort of a a standard operating procedure if a kid's really not thriving at all? Or is it, you know, yeah, what do you, how do you handle that? So, yeah, we don't claim to be psychologists or psychiatrists. So Mm -hmm. if it is something more clinical, then we definitely defer to um, the other members of our team. But if it's just a matter of that they're not coping well with the hospital because of a reason that we can help, it may be that they just don't understand what's going on and they feel really scared because no one's told them what's happening or they've just had a really bad experience last time they were here and how can we make that better? So it's having that conversation with the patient to really see where those feelings are stemming from Mm -hmm. and what we can do to help make them more comfortable within the environment. But if it is something outside of our realm, we definitely work with our psychology team to help support patients because we are really doing those activities on a daily basis with the kids and building those relationships so we're able to work with with the other members of our team to help in their goals. Because I imagine, you know, a, a lot of doctors are going to stop by for 10 minutes, mm-hmm. if that, in the course of a day, you know, or, or two days. Whereas it seems like you're seeing these kids day in and day out. I mean, you probably have a better sense of their emotional being than anyone else at the hospital, right? Yeah. So I think it's really at our institution, our profession is very well respected and looked to for to really assess how a patient is coping. So each week we meet with the entire medical team. The, the residents, social workers, physical and occupational therapists. And we go through each patient to really discuss not only their medical stuff, but the emotional stuff. And they look to us to say, how do you think this child is coping? What can we do as a team to really impact their experience? So because, like you said, we do get to know them on a different level because we are there for the, the whole day and throughout their hospitalization. We know, I think we get to know them on a, a, a different level than their medical team. Their medical team certainly knows them well. But like you said, it's, it's a little bit different because we are the non-threatening medical people. We're the people in the playroom. We're the people that bring fun things. And so that's a great in to, to build relationships with kids. Have you ever been really surprised by how a kid reacted to what you were teaching them or trying to teach them or tell them? So I I had a a patient a few months back who I was preparing him for his Metaport, which is a central line that gets placed under the skin when you have to receive long-term treatment. So he was receiving chemotherapy. And we we try to phrase this as a, it's a positive thing because it's it stays in the entire length of treatment. So instead of getting poked for an IV every time you need your chemotherapy, this port stays in um, so that it's it's there every time you need your treatment. 
And so we would never sit, promise kids anything that this is you're never going to get poked again. I would never say that. But in that conversation, he that's what he held on to, that I'm never going to have to get poked again because I have a central line now. And a few weeks into his treatment, he hadn't got an infection and he had to have the central line removed and he had to get his treatment through an IV, which mm-hmm. meant he had to get poked every time he needed it. And I didn't realize how much he had grasped on to that education session where we said that this would reduce the number of pokes. And I couldn't figure out why he was no longer interacting with me and he had a very sad affect and he sort of, I felt like, was mad at me. And so I finally sort of explored that with him and said, what's going on? I noticed you didn't want to play, you know, Legos today and that's something you really like to do. And he finally told me that it was because he was really mad that I had told him that this port was going to be something good for him and that I lied. And and that took me by surprise because I I had thought to myself, no, I we prepared him that this would reduce the number of pokes. But in his mind, he was seven and he he hung on to that piece that this was going to be helpful for him. And he felt like I betrayed him in that way. And we had built all this trust. And that's what, you know, our job is there to do. And I had taken a few steps back on that trust. So it was a lot of work, but I had to rebuild that trust with him for him to really value anything I said, because everything that I would explain to him in the future, he said, are you sure that's the truth? Because last time you said that it wasn't. <laughs> um, so it, it was a tough and I think it's a few months later that I still remember this because we finally gotten to the point where he trusts me again. But I had no idea that that simple language that I was providing to him was going to be so impactful for how he coped with medical experiences moving forward. Are kids forgiving in general of that that kind of stuff? I mean, or are, are they are there a lot of instances where they say you lied? I always start my conversation with child life specialists. We never lie to patients. Oh, so I'm not saying you are. No, but like I know. But we, feels like. I, we, if if the, it's going to hurt, if the procedure is going to hurt, I'm going to tell a kid. Yeah. This may hurt. It may feel a little burning. It may feel a little warm. And generally they are they trust that. But. I think if there's some situation where they understood it differently or maybe the language that I provided wasn't exactly accurate, they'll call you out on it, which I always say, thank you for letting me know that. That way I can help explain it to another patient in that way so that they understand it in a more concrete way. Because, like, I'm not the one experiencing the healthcare, And so I need my patients to tell me what is helpful and how th- how they experience things so I can do that for the next patient. You're learning from them. Exactly. And that's really empowering for for them to say, oh, I'm going to help another kid who's going to go through this. Oh, I'm not the only one going through this. Um, Because a lot of kids think that they're the only ones experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And for you to be able to say, actually, there's a lot of kids going through this. And what what kind of advice would you give to them? And letting them sort of separate themselves from their own journey and giving them the chance to help other patients. I know you said that you don't keep in touch with any kids on social media, but do you keep in touch with any of them outside the hospital afterwards in any capacity? So our Child Life um, Association of Child Life practice, we we do have strict guidelines that we don't maintain a personal relationship with families. After two years, we're able to do that. But for two years, we're not able to have any personal relationship. But we will if patients leave after a long period and say, we may want to send you pictures. We can give them a work email and keep in touch in that regard. Some patients will come back up to the unit after they're done with treatment just to say hi so we can get updates that way. So it's really at the discretion of the the patient and family whether they want to maintain that relationship. But not all, all families do. They may say, we're done with this part of our lives and we're moving on and other people want to have that relationship. And so you do keep in touch with some of them though. Yep. 
is it just like you once in a while see like how they're doing at school or right like yeah like a parent may email us and say i just had a patient who went to prom and the mother sent me pictures of her prom um, just to say how well she's doing so we love updates like that (laughs) do you ever work with kids who aren't necessarily sick but just in the hospital with their families for you know because a parent's ill or something so we get a lot of referrals for children of adult patients. So we work with them towards the end of life of the adults end of life situation and helping not only the children understand what is going on with their parent or loved one, but also giving opportunities to create legacy work and memory making. So we do a lot of handprint, footprint, art sort of projects for the kids to have a tangible thing to take home mm-hmm. of their family member while also creating a, as much of a positive visit while they're there visiting their loved one. And because yeah. art is normalizing for kids that they're often love doing a project like that and it gives them a positive interaction with their loved one at such a, a devastating time. Are you, again, working with the younger kids mostly in that case or also older it, you know, Again, teenagers? can be, I would say... Younger to up to 18, because at that point, we'd consider them more of an adult. But yeah, uh, under 18, I would say we we get a lot of calls about that. So part of it is kind of giving them some good final memories of, of their loved one. But what goes into helping them understand what's happening? How do you, again, are you doing the thing where you kind of help the family explain to them or and you're you're sort of playing a support role or are you actually you know having that talk with the kid yeah so we work closely with the social workers of the adult patient in in really guiding what the family wants and so families sometimes want us to meet with the children with them present to facilitate those conversations of what's happening with Mm -hmm. mom or dad or grandpa. And again, we want to try to give them the tools to provide that language, but a lot of time they need that extra guidance during the conversation. And then other times families are really hesitant to bring the little ones in that they think it's going to be too scary or they don't know what to do during the visit. So we're able to provide them language and resources to do at home, even if they're not coming to the bedside. How do most kids you see deal with being at the bedside? I mean, I, I've been there. I was there, but I was 18 and it was hard. Uh, it was yeah. very, very hard at, as a you know, fairly mature teenager. How does a, a six-year-old or seven-year-old cope? I feel like I've said this a lot, so I don't mean to repeat myself, yeah. but I every child really is so different. And so what we want to try to do beforehand is sort of prepare them for what they can expect walking into the room. And hopefully that will alleviate some of that stress. But then when they get there, we, we want to give them the control to, to do what they feel comfortable with. If they get to the door and say, you know what, that's too much then that's okay. Mm-hmm. If you want to go to the bedside, you go to the bedside, but they have to do what's comfortable for them and we don't want to push them. So giving them that choice, I think is something that we can help parents with because I think they bring their child and they want to, oh, you're coming here to visit and you should be at the bedside, but sometimes that's too much. So what can they do even though they're visiting? Maybe it's creating a letter or a picture to go by the adult's bedside, even if they didn't want to come in. So it's facilitating those conversations with parents and giving that sort of guidance. Mm-hmm. And I suppose kind of affirming that choice too, making them feel like they did the right thing for themselves. Exactly. What's the thing that you wish more people understood about your job other than actually knowing yeah. what it was? Because it seems like that's the first time <laughs> you have to get over. I wish people knew that it wasn't so sad and depressing. <laughs> and that the I'm min- not helping here. <laughs> 
And that the minute you say to somebody on the street, you know, you work in pediatrics in a hospital and you help kids cope with being there. Oh, that's so sad. Yes, it is. But there's so much beauty in what we do and so many rewarding things. Like I said, these patients and families allow us to be on this journey with them in the most stressful time in their life and to give them a sense of control and opportunities to make memories and and strengthen their coping skills. There is so much beauty in what we do, and I feel so lucky to do what I do, and I love going to work every day, which I don't think is a common thing. <laughs> People don't understand that, but I genuinely look forward to going to work every day. Well, thank you for coming in and talking about all this. Yeah, this was really great. And I hope to spread the word of what a child life specialist does so people know about it. Yeah, and and hopefully fewer dour conversations. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like the one I just... All right, thanks so much. It was great. Thank you. You've been listening to Working. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode, but before I say goodbye, I just wanted to kind of talk about one of the themes that came up throughout that interview. If you've ever experienced an illness, whether it's your own or a loved one's, you probably found yourself asking if you were handling it the right way, if you were supporting your mom or dad or kid the way they needed to be, or if you were dealing with your own emotions appropriately. And during our chat, one of the things that Jamie kept saying was that, well, everyone's different when it comes to everyone has a different emotional valence everyone gets through stuff in their own individual way whether it's because their age or just their personality and it was just sort of a reminder to me that there really is no right way to deal with this stuff you have to figure out what your own limits are and what allows you to get through adversity anyway i thought that was valuable and i just kind of wanted to underline it for everybody If you have comments on the show, things you want to share, uh, thoughts, impressions, criticisms, uh, email us at working at slate.com. We really do enjoy getting uh, emails from our listeners. And if you liked the show, particularly, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. As always, I want to say thank you to Justin D. Wright for our ad music and my wonderful producer, Jessamine Molly, uh, without whom, obviously, I couldn't get any of this done. Hope you join us for next week's episode. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.